Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after. Welcome to The Last Word. I'm Johnny Young, joined here today by Pastor JD. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. It's good to be here. (laughs) And my best friend, co-intern. I'm Cam. Cam. I'm also very happy. Glad to be here Very glad to be here. Thanks for filling in for Paul. So, uh, JD, as you spoke last week, you had that amazing analogy with the olive tree. And I loved Mm -hmm. hearing it and where it led into testimonies and just the role of finishing out Paul addressing the Gentiles and the Jews and that relationship on like Mm -hmm. what salvation means for them then. So my first question is, why shouldn't we feel pride for thinking we earned our salvation? And how can we turn that pride around and do better at giving that glory to God? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think you have kind of two, two really good examples. um, When we think about the scripture here, the first of which is that the Jews were very prideful and arrogant that they had, achieved salvation in a very unique way because of mm-hmm. their righteousness that was based on the law, which the they've never actually been able to keep. And so it's right. very ironic that they could mm-hmm. be prideful about their own righteousness while they, it actually demonstrates unrighteousness through mm-hmm. that. So there's a tremendous amount of irony there. And then the second part of that is now that the Gentiles have been included in the covenant family of God, they cannot become arrogant, is what Paul says, because... Mm-hmm. It's Jesus who has done the work. It's Jesus Mm -hmm. who has made the way for them to be included in the family of God. Mm -hmm. And so in both instances, it is really important that we recognize that it is nothing that we have done. Mm -hmm. Uh, That that we will never be righteous enough on our own to be able to earn our salvation. And then Mm -hmm. secondarily, that once we are included in the family of God, it's not because of what we have done, but it's because of what Jesus has done. And so it all revolves around the grace of God become incarnate in the person of Jesus that Mm -hmm. gives us access to salvation. It's never based on anything that we have done. Mm -hmm. That's That's so good. And the olive tree metaphor that you talked about on Thursday was really eye-opening to me, I think, in a lot of ways. And as I was reflecting on it, I think it's so cool that like when I heard that, I was like, whoa, I can't believe creation can do that. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that goes back to only something God can do. That's I'm mind blown that that's something I can never do like for myself. I can never make trees grow (laughs) like with a dead (sighs) branch in it. And in the same way, I was thinking about how it's so Mm -hmm. cool that in the same way, I could never make my own salvation happen happen for myself in the mm-hmm. same way that God created this amazing earth and the the way the world works and the way that he can make something out of nothing, literally just in the representation of trees. I feel like that's also such a representation of our salvation. Mm-hmm. Like, whoa, I'm so mind blown by that. And I think that's an amazing mindset for us to come into and in loving other people and mm-hmm. loving the Absolutely. Lord and bringing ourselves with humility to his throne of grace. Because in the same way we can't make trees grow, we can't we can't get ourselves to heaven. We can't get ourselves into a relationship with Jesus. We can't provide our own righteousness. Um, and so I feel like the olive tree and like just the example of creation and how we can never do it is like so cool for me. And then mm-hmm. there's... Um, I don't know if y'all have seen The Chosen, but there's an episode in The Chosen where Jesus is walking with two of his disciples. I don't remember which ones they are. And they come across these Samaritans who start like spitting on them and, and start rejecting them. And the disciples get really, really angry. And they look at Jesus and they're like, Jesus, bring the 
fire of God on them. They don't deserve to be alive right now. Yeah, like kill them. And Jesus looks at them and he's like, okay. He's like, you really think that you're more worthy than they are? And they're Mm -hmm. like, well, when you put it like that, and it's just really cool because like in in the same way with the passage, we see that the Jewish people thought that they were more holy and like more righteous and like we're more deserving. I I just thought back to that episode where Jesus looks at his own people and he's like, I'm just telling you, you're not more worthy than mm-hmm. anybody else. It's really cool. Absolutely. I mean, you go back to verse 18, mm-hmm. Paul reminds us, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Mm-hmm. That it's not uh, what we do or what we bring before God that like supports what Jesus has done. Rather, it is what Jesus has done that supports us. That is the basis of our identity. That is the basis of our righteousness is really only what Jesus has done. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Makes me think of that one person in the group project that doesn't do any of the work. (laughs) That's really good, yeah. Yeah. We are perpetually the person who has done nothing in the group project, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, So you continued that really cool it's called gafting. Is that what it's called? Grafting. Grafting. Yeah. I thought that was such a cool metaphor that Paul used. Yeah, you continued uh, using that into talking about giving our testimonies, which I mm-hmm. thought was so cool yeah. that Paul couldn't help but give praise to God and that we should almost feel that same urgency. And so just tell us a little bit on what is a testimony and what's the role and importance in giving it? Mm-hmm. So testimony, very simply, is the story of what God has done in your life. Mm-hmm. And that is, I, I was even trying to like grasp at a more complex understanding of that, but that's simply it. Our yeah. testimony is we are telling the story of what God has done in our life. Mm-hmm. And the re, there's so many layers of importance with this, but at a very base level, when we tell that story, we give glory to God. Mm-hmm. And that's where we recognize that our story is yes, we are living our story, but that story is not about us. That story is about what God has done in our lives. And so when we live in a transformed manner, the the cool part is the outflow of that as we begin to tell our story to other people. And through that, God is glorified and people come to know him as a result. And one of the important things for us to see in this is that this story of what God has done in your life is one of the most most basic and important tools for us in our Christian walk. Not only because it helps us to orient uh, uh, us to God's character, like his loving kindness and his graciousness, his justice, all of those things. It teaches us about God's character. It teaches us about like Christian thinking and theology. And finally, it is our biggest apologetic tool. Several weeks ago, Johnny, you talked about how we will never be able to debate anyone into mm-hmm. faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, then how do we talk to people about Jesus? Mm-hmm. Well, we very simply tell the story of what God has done in our life. And yeah. that is what helps people to come to know Jesus. I, I very simply say like a testimony in practice is I was blind, but mm-hmm. now I see. And it's just that simple. I was lost and then God found me. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, yeah, (laughs) everything, exactly what JD said, (laughs) that. But I mean, from my own personal experience and my own walk, I've just, I've seen the power of testimony. I have, no matter where I am, it can be at a camp where like that's the environment or it can be just like 
on the street. And mm. I've seen like what God can do in those moments. And I recently um, was at a picnic with some friends and we all started sharing our testimony. And one thing I love that we all kind of said as we started, we were like, I don't really know how to finish this because like God is still writing it. Yeah. Like it's not something that was just like, oh, here I am and now it's done. Like all the work that God is doing in me is completely finished and I've got it all figured out. No, I'm I'm still walking through what God is teaching me and my testimony, the beautiful thing about it and everyone's is that it's gonna be for the rest of our lives. It's mm-hmm. not something that's done when we feel like, oh, I feel like I've arrived and got to that place. First of all, that God's gonna humble you too mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're thinking that because I've noticed that whenever I'm like, I'm here, God's like, mm, no. Um, and so that's really cool. But just knowing like the beautiful part is, is that God is just, he's constant and he's there in every moment and for the rest of your life and every season. That is so good. Yeah. I love thinking how like your testimony is like your undeniable proof of God. And, mm-hmm. you know, every sin struggle is so similar, but you know, our testimonies are all unique, which is yeah. so cool. Yeah. yeah. And so going still on that topic of testimonies, what I've noticed is when people, you know, are talking on the topic of testimonies a lot, I see a common struggle where someone can think, hey, I kind of grew up in the church. I didn't have this traumatic, you know, thing in my life. I didn't have that Batman story where, yeah, I'm an orphan. (laughs) Yeah, and all these crazy things are happening. And so Mm -hmm. uh, they kind of like lose sight on the importance on their testimony and like how to give in. So what advice Mm -hmm. would you give to that person that thinks that maybe they don't have a big enough story. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the the beginning part of that is again recognizing that the story's not about you. Yeah. If you make the story about you and you think like how yeah, good is this story to tell at parties, then you're never going to think that you have a great story because mm-hmm. you've made yourself the main character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when we place God at the very center of that, we recognize that it is a remarkable story about being brought from death to life in Christ. Mm -hmm. And that is every story. That's the remarkable part about it. Yes, I came to know Jesus at six years old sitting in a Sunday school classroom. But in that very moment, it was the most dramatic thing that has ever happened because God brought me from death to life. Mm -hmm. And I think in where I would encourage people who have a story like mine, where I grew up in the church my entire life, I've been kind of with fits and starts walking with Jesus since I was a young child, oh my gosh, you're not the only person who has that story. And so the testimony, the story of what God has done in your life is not unique and boring to you. That's the story that speaks to so many people who are in an incredibly similar situation who say, well, I maybe walked away from God when I got to college, but I came to know Jesus as a very young child. And it's like, then tell that story because your story has power because God has been working in your life since you were a child. And so recognize that it is a dramatic, life-changing story and that it's all about God. It's not about you. Mm-hmm. So good. Yeah, so true. I also kind of grew up in and out of the church. And my encouragement to anyone who is in that boat right now of thinking that their testimony doesn't matter or their story doesn't matter in the story of God, the church is a is a hospital for for broken people is what it is. And so if you're in the church, like we still need Jesus just as much, whether you're inside yeah. or outside. And I just want to encourage people that just because you are, you have been to church, it doesn't mean that it's, it's, you're completely like better or healed or anything like that. Kind of like going back to earlier. But I mean, I, I heard that recently somebody say that, that the church is a hospital for, for broken people and both in and out. We all need Jesus just as desperately, whether you're inside 
or outside of it. And so like me, like growing up, I know that that's the truest thing ever. Like Mm -hmm. I was absolutely broken within the walls of the church and didn't actually have that transformation from Jesus like yet. But like, man, I would come to find out that he's so good and like that transformation is real and that your story is so important because it's God's story. That's so good. I mean, yeah, the fact that we're sitting here breathing, you know, still alive today is just such a testament to God. Um, Yeah, really good stuff. And so, J.D., you will be speaking. Not me. Not Paulina you. This Paulina week. will be yeah. speaking Paulina this week. But do you want to introduce what Paulina will be talking about yeah. and having the last word? Yeah, absolutely. So we just finished uh, this past Thursday walking through this last section of the book of Romans, which is all about how the gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel. Now here in chapter 12, what Paul is going to do is he's going to transition and he's going to begin to talk about how the gospel unifies the church, that the gospel uh, reaches beyond ethnic and cultural boundaries and unifies us through love and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And so it's a lot of what Paul does early in the letter of, in, in Romans is he talks about who we are, our identity, our justification before God. And really where he turns the corner here in chapter 12 is he begins to talk about the process of sanctification, which is the process of being made holy. And that happens through love and forgiveness and a unified community and a body of believers. It's so good to be together, guys. If maybe this is your first time or your first time in a long time, my name is JD. I have the privilege of serving as the Crosstalk Pastor. And it is it is so exciting. I love my job. I love my job. And, I ho- and I'm so thankful that you guys are here. And As I was thinking about this week, I was actually thinking about, uh, I have a couple of people in my life who I aspire to be when I am their age. A couple of like my grandparents actually are are those sorts of older folks that you really, really enjoy listening to them tell stories. That you could just sit around and drink a cup of coffee with them all day and just listen to them tell stories. Stories, And I have to tell you that it is one of my great goals in life to be one of those people someday. And so I hear stories all the time that I like lock away in the back of my brain for the right situation in which to pull those things out. And so in this bank of stories, I don't know about y'all, but I, but I love those sorts of stories that leave you at the very end questioning about whether that actually happened or not. It's like right on that raggedy edge of being possible or actually true. And you're left knowing, not knowing whether they actually told you the truth or not. And to give credit where credit is due, I think a lot of those crazy stories actually do happen in the lives of people. People do have some unbelievable things that happen to them and they end up with these really incredible stories. But I also think there are times when somebody hears a really good story. Like I actually heard one this morning and I've been waiting for like the right situation to tell this crazy story. And so that situation comes up and you're like, oh my gosh, I have the best story ever for this given moment. And so you tell the story and that very first time is when it goes from firsthand knowledge to secondhand knowledge, right? So you heard it from the mouth of the person it happened to and now you are telling it to somebody else. And as time goes on, often what happens is there are details in those really crazy stories that get just a little bit crazier. 
Some slight over-exaggeration tends to happen and stories continue to grow and to grow and to grow and suddenly the fish went from this big to this big, right? That's how all of those sorts of stories end up that way or just little tiny bits of exaggeration. Well, the other thing that happens is oftentimes you'll hear stories and I know that this has happened to me. I actually got caught in it one time and it was a very good thing for me where I told a story And I'd been telling that story so many times that I ended up saying that the story happened to me, which wasn't true in the slightest. But I think that oftentimes happens where you hear something crazy and it goes through generations and generations of exaggerations and suddenly it didn't happen to Johnny, it happened to me. And now Johnny's story is mine and there's enough distance between the two of us that you can usually get away with it, right? And so what happens is this act of appropriation where you're taking a story from someone else and you are making it your own story. Now, this is not, those examples are not good things, right? Oftentimes, those exaggerations are are not true. When it happens to somebody else and you claim that it happens to you, those things are not true. So I'm not ascribing or telling you guys that you guys should now start taking people's stories and making them happen to you. But really, it's this act of taking a story and making it your own that is fairly central to following Jesus. When it comes to following Jesus, we are taking, talking about a very specific story. And over time, we hear and we learn this narrative storyline of the Bible. And it happens in bits and pieces. Because one time you hear the story of Abraham and you start to understand the story of Abraham. And then at a later point in time, you hear the story of Isaac and you start to understand the story of Isaac and the story of Jacob. And then you hear the story of the exile for the first time and you begin to put these pieces of a narrative together. You hear the story of the the judges and the kings. And then it ultimately comes to this very dramatic climax in the person of Jesus Christ. And over our lifetime, what happens is we begin to understand and put together these pieces of this narrative. And we begin to tell that story and we utilize the story of what God has done throughout all of human history to bring people back to himself. And we learn things about God in the process. We learn about his character. We learn about his love. We learn about his mercy. We learn about his justice. We learn that our own story of coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ becomes intertwined with this narrative storyline of the Bible, that the storyline of what has happened in the scriptures now includes us, that we are included in the people of God, which means the story of the Bible is now our story. It is the history of the people of God. And this is part of realizing, ultimately, our own identity. Understanding that we are included in God's covenant family. And now, this story is a major part of the significance of the section that we've been in in Romans. This is Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11. And Paul, what he is doing is examining the story of the nation of Israel. God's covenant people, his chosen nation. God says to the Israelite people, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so the entire, the entire narrative of the Bible up 
to the point of Jesus is centered around God's relationship with the people of Israel. Now, since Jesus became incarnate and died on a cross, salvation has been offered to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. And Paul has to deal with the question of Israel. What about Israel? What, is, what are the Jewish people's status now that Jesus has, the Messiah has come? And so two weeks ago, we talked about Israel in the past. In Romans chapter 9, Paul briefly retells this story of Israel. It's this unique story of how the Creator God worked with His covenant people to bring about His redemptive purposes. It is the story, in other words, whose dramatic climax and goal is the Messiah, Jesus, which the people of Israel rejected and crucified. And so we see in chapter 9 that Paul has this anguish, he has this pain over his own people. And so last week we looked at Romans chapter 10 and Johnny taught us about Israel in the present moment. And the reason so many Israelites reject Jesus is that they are basing their covenant relationship with God on their ability to follow the law. Sadly, they don't recognize what God has done through Jesus to create this new covenant family. And they're missing out is what Paul is telling us. Now, when we turn our attention to chapter 11, where Paul, he asked this question about what about Israel in the future? We've dealt with Israel in the past. We've dealt with Israel in the present moment. What about Israel in the future? What is their status? Will God write his own people off? And Paul's answer for us is no. He will not write his people off. And so what we're going to do, we're going to hop in here in Romans 11. We're going to start in verse 1. If you guys want to follow along, whether you guys have your Bibles or it's going to be on the screen behind me. He says in verse 1, I ask then, has, is, has God rejected his people? We talked about this a long time ago, but anytime you see a question like that and it's followed by a phrase such as, by no means, what Paul is doing is using a rhetorical device here. That is a rhetorical question which he intends to answer, and that is the foundation of his argument going forward. So he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So has God rejected his people? No, he points at his own life as the proof of that. He says, God ha can't have rejected the people of Israel because look at me. I am an Israelite. So he goes on in verse 2. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. 
What he is pointing out is that there are so many Jewish people, including himself, who have recognized Jesus as the Messiah. But on the flip side of the coin, there are so many people who haven't. What Paul makes clear is that their acceptance before God is not according to their works. It is not a righteousness based on their ability to follow the laws of the Torah. Otherwise, the whole principle of grace would be violated. We talked about this in Romans chapter 9, but grace at its most basic definition is unmerited favor. Grace is simply unmerited favor. Therefore, it cannot be obtained on the basis of works. It is purely by relying on and trusting God. If the Jewish people can achieve righteousness, if they can achieve salvation by their works, then Jesus' death on the cross is null and void. It meant nothing. So what Paul wants us to see is if he and other Jewish Christians are this new kind of remnant, called by grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no reason why other Jewish people shouldn't join them. We're going to skip down to verse 11 now. He says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Again, rhetorical device right here. You guys can see that he's transitioning in his argument. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Once again, God has used the rejection of the Jewish people to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Their rejection of Jesus has caused the gospel to spread quicker and farther into the Gentile world. The result of which is that the family of Abraham is becoming even larger and more multi-ethnic as a result. Because those who are considered children of Abraham are not considered thus by their ethnic heritage or their ability to follow the law. Rather, it is based on their saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is undeniable that what has happened to Israel has been for the good of the Gentile people. So there's every reason to believe that Israel itself will become jealous, as Paul says, and therefore more of Paul's Uh, other ethnic Jews will come to know Jesus as a result. They will see what the Gentiles have received in Jesus Christ, and they will become jealous of that, and they too will then come to know Jesus. He goes on in verse 16, and he says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in, among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Gentile people, do not become arrogant about your place in the people of God. 
If you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Remember that your inclusion in the family of God is not because of what you do, it's because of what Jesus has done for you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is one of the coolest images that Paul uses in any of his writings. It is this image of an olive tree. Johnny recommended this week that I get an olive tree and like have it here as a deal. Turns out they are really expensive. Very expensive. Brooklyn told me they're like in and home decor right now. And so they're very expensive trees. I thought it would be cool. It just debt. I don't have the budget. Don't have the budget. But what Paul describes is God's covenant family as this big olive tree. And the tree is to be understood as the people of God. The root of that tree is Jesus, the Messiah, who gives the entire tree its life. The Jewish people who have, reje- who have rejected Jesus are these branches that have been broken off of the tree. While these Gentiles are like these wild branches that have been grafted onto the tree. Now there's several really cool things about grafting. And this is going to like nerd out about plants for a minute, but I promise it, it is so cool. So what happens, and there are several ways to graft branches onto a tree. So I'm going to describe this very generally. But the process of grafting an olive tree is basically that you take the branch of a tree and you cut it off. Fairly simple, right? And then you go to the tree that you want to graft it into, and you're going to cut like a notch into the tree. And you'll take the branch that you cut off, and you're going to cut it into the shape of that notch, and you're going to place it inside of it. And then what you do is you bind that branch to, to, uh, the, to the tree. And in doing so, what ends up happening is that branch grows and becomes a part of the tree. It is really crazy. You can take a branch from one tree and attach it to another tree and it grows together. And when those things grow together, there is no difference between the two anymore. They are one singular tree. And the really cool part of this act of grafting is that it also works with dead branches. You can take a dead branch off of an olive tree You can graft it into a living tree and that branch will come back to life because of the nourishment that it is getting from the trunk of the tree it was grafted into. So what Paul is doing here is saying that the Gentiles have been grafted into the family of God, someplace that they didn't originally belong. And as a result, there's no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles anymore. They are all the people of God. Now, 
we now bear the fruit of living a life that has been saved and redeemed by Jesus. That is the fruit of being grafted into the tree. And that includes all of us in this room who have said yes to Jesus. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we were brought back to life by the work of Jesus Christ. And now we bear fruit as a result of being in the covenant family of God. It's really remarkable stuff. And the even cooler part is that a gardener normally doesn't, and follow me here, a gardener normally doesn't take a wild branch and graft it into a cultivated or a farmed tree. It's kind of backwards because what you would normally do is you would take a, a, a wild tree which has more energy and will to survive because it's not in a safe environment and you would graft a cultivated, a farmed branch onto that tree so that you're using the energy of the wild tree to grow more fruit on the tree. And so what Paul does here is he talks about grafting a wild branch onto a cultivated tree, which is contrary to nature. Nobody does that because they want the tree to bear as much fruit as possible. And so what Paul is trying to help us understand is that what God has done for us is a miracle of grace. It is not something that occurs naturally. It's contrary to nature. And so for those of us who are not Jewish in the room, we have to recognize the miracle of what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ to bring us into his covenant family. It is something that is contrary to nature, and yet it is offered to us as a free gift. It is remarkable. And it is only because of Jesus' redemptive work on the cross that we are included in the people of God. It is His act that has brought us into the family of God. So, if God, against all normal laws of nature and good farming practices can cut us out of our native wild olive tree and graft us into the cultivated family of God, then the branches that have presently been cut off can certainly be grafted back in. He wants us to see that it is by his power that we are included in the people of God. It is an absolute miracle of grace. And it is by that same power that the Jewish people may again be included in the family of God by coming to know Jesus as their Savior. Verse 29 says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Paul's main thrust in this chapter is that one day Jesus will be acknowledged by his own people, the Jewish people. Now, he doesn't any, offer up any details about how that is going to happen. 
He doesn't offer up any details about how, but simply trusts in God's character and promise that he will not give up on his covenant people in the same way that he did not give up on us and still does not give up on us. Because we too were once far off from God and received mercy. So too will the Jewish people receive mercy. God has not written the people of Israel off, is what Paul is saying. He goes on and he finishes the chapter in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In Romans 9 to 11, Paul starts with an urgent problem. What about the nation of Israel? And over the course of these three chapters, he wrestles with this problem in grief and in anguish, he tells us. And he retells the story of Israel, laying out God's acts from the past and here in the present. And he closes this section with a doxology. And that comes from a Greek word that simply means glory. So when we glory in God and give glory to God, what we are doing is really assigning him or giving him the spotlight, if you will. What that means for us in reality is that we are stepping out of the way so that people can see God and what he has done. Finally, Paul gets here to the end of these three chapters and he just bursts through with this song of praise. It's really remarkable because he, he struggles with this question about what about my own people with anguish and with sorrow. And then here at the end, he says, from him and to him and through him are all things. And it is incredibly important for us to understand why he bursts out in this song of praise. He has just retold the story of Israel and wrestled with their place in the people of God. And I don't know about y'all, but when I have the chance to tell the story about what God has done in my life, when I reflect on what God has brought me out of and how he has redeemed me in my life, I can't help but speak words of praise about the things that he has done that I cannot do for myself. And at the heart of Romans 9 to 11 lies this challenge of learning to tell the story of God. That is at the very heart of this, is learning to tell the story of God. The story of what God has done in the world. This act of telling the story is partly for us unlearning some things. It's unlearning the misleading ways of telling this story that the world, that the, the church, that other people have told us that are misrepresentative of who God is. And it takes this the development of like a certain amount of skill for us to be able to unpack the stories that are implicitly being told in both the world and in our church. 
and to make the right adjustments and the additions and the subtractions or deletions to bring them into line with the story of the covenant people of God that Paul is telling here. And what I'm trying to say is that when we think about the story of what God has done in our life, that story needs to be about God. It's not about us. It is a story about what God has done. Ultimately, the Bible is not about you. And we have to come to that recognition that the Bible is about what God has done. And because of that, we need to check for signs that the story we are telling is becoming this self-congratulatory thing or it's very triumphalistic about what we have done and what, who we are. Because that story ultimately needs to be about the goodness and the mercy of God of what he has done to redeem us in our lives. And when we do this, when we learn to tell the story of a God who broke into time and space in the person of Jesus, this story becomes one of the most basic and important tools of Christian thinking, of Christian apologetics, and about Christian teaching. This story. Stories, not in the very least, this epic story from creation to new creation, from covenant to new covenant, from Abraham to Moses to the Messiah to this ultimate final salvation, have their own dynamic. They have a life of their own. And so we have to learn to tell that story, to let that dynamic come out in full force. The scholar N.T. Wright reminds us that these stories are bottom line reality. That the narrative storyline of the Bible is bottom line reality. What God has done in your life is bottom line reality. Arguably, arguably, if Paul is anything to go by, they are more bottom line reality than even doctrinal statements. When Paul wants to confront or to comfort or to build up or to worship, his regular way of doing so is not making two or three abstract doctrinal statements. Instead, it is to tell the story of the people of God and invite his readers to make it their own. This remains the prime task of Christian teaching, to tell the story of what God has done and invite people to tell their own story. So what is your story? How has God redeemed you? How has God saved you? What has God done in your life? And just as important, how comfortable are you with telling that story? If you were to walk out of here right after this and somebody asked you your story, if they just wanted to hear about why you follow Jesus, can you tell that story? More so, would you be able to tell them the story of Scripture? The story of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, of the exile, of the wilderness, of the judges, of the kings, come to fruition in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. There's this transition in our life that happens when we begin to order our lives in a way that gives God the glory. And this really is graduate-level Christianity. This is graduate-level Christianity. When we become a Christian, we learn who Jesus is. 
We learn what it means to follow him. We learn the habits of study and prayer. We learn the importance of community. And at some point in time, we still have to answer the question, who is at the center of my life and what is my life all about? Who is at the center of my life and what is my life all about? The movement of Christianity is placing God at the very center of it all. And that's really hard. It's really, really difficult because we have placed ourselves at the very center of our own lives, our entire lives. We want the entire world to revolve around us. I don't want to wait in lines. I want everybody in traffic to get out of my way. I want my relationships in my most selfish moment to be about me. I want to know what people give me out of my relationship with them. People should agree with me. They shouldn't disagree with me. Those are the moments I want to place myself at the very center of my life and not God. And when we come to know Jesus, we take ourselves out of the center of our own universe and we place God there. And then we begin to tell others about it. That's the coolest part of it all, is it's not about us. It's a free gift offered to us. And then when we experience the transformation of a life with Jesus, we then begin to tell other people about it. Ultimately, we place God at the center when we become experts at telling the story of what God is doing in the world, and we make it our own. We give him all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. As Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Father God, Lord, we thank you, Jesus, for this story. We thank you for the reminder, God, that we do have a story to tell, Jesus. Father, I pray for those who may be in the room tonight who have never experienced you before, God, who are questioning what this story is all about, Jesus. Father, I pray that you become very real to them tonight, God. Father, may they see in the gospel, Lord, your goodness and your mercy that you broke into time and space to bring them back to right relationship with you, God. And Father, I pray that if that person, if that stirs something inside of them, Jesus, that they may simply say yes to you this evening, God. Father, for those of us who have said yes to Jesus, God, I ask that you stir in us a new passion and a new fire to tell the story of what you have done in our lives, God. May we become experts at the story you are telling, God. We thank you that you include us in that story, Jesus that you don't need us, but you want to use us to bring more people to you, God. And so, Father, I, I, I pray for courage and boldness. I pray, Lord, for opportunities for us to share our story, God. And Father, may you, through all of it, be glorified by those stories, Lord, that every time we have a chance to tell it, God, that it would be a fragrant offering to you, Jesus. And Father, we ask that through those stories that more people may come to know you. 
We pray this all in your name. Amen.